Uh, if you want to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 this morning, I would appreciate you doing that. Uh, that's page 803 if you want to use one of those Bibles in front of you in the pews there, page 803. Um, and let me just say a few months back, if you're new with us or maybe you've just recently come, we launched into a long look at this letter. It's actually a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the city of Rome during the first century. And, uh, and I wanna remind us of a few things that have been happening, a, a few things about this letter because I feel like it sets the table for what we're gonna be looking at today. Um, Paul writes this letter during what's referred to as his third missionary journey. And he writes to what would seem to be a fairly firmly established collection of people who are followers of the way of Jesus, who are living in the city of Rome. And I, I think this is really important for us to acknowledge because Rome at the time is probably the most complicated, most powerful, most wealthy city in the Western world. And these people are carving out their faith in that context. And I think that's important because I think we live in a complicated context. Those of us that live in this community, this is a complicated place to live. And I think sometimes we forget that these people were forging their faith in equally challenging times as we are. And so I think there's a lot that we can glean from this. So this group, they're living in this place. It's a challenging place. And then they've been through some challenging circumstances. And I shared this in one of the weeks early on in this series, but pretty early in the, in the church in, in Rome, all of the ethnically Jewish people were told to move out of the city of Rome by the Caesar. And this included people that were ethnically Jewish, but they were followers of, of the way of Jesus. And so all of them had to leave, which means a good chunk of this first church suddenly moved and left the city. And so there's this whole group that's gone. And that group, because of Christianity's close ties with Judaism and Jewish culture, they had really shaped the culture, the understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. What does it look like? What do you act like? What do you do? All of this had been shaped by the Jewish people that were part of this. And so now they're gone. And they're gone for a while. And then after a short period of time, uh, several years actually, the, the emperor allows them to move back into the city. And so the church, of course, they hear all their friends are moving back and they say, welcome home, right? Come back. And so they all come back. Problem was, somebody moved the furniture while they were gone, right? Has that ever happened to you? Like you come back to something you hadn't been to for a while and it's just different. And you're like, I don't know what it is, but it's just different. Uh, that's what happened to these people. The customs and the practices had changed around the church. And so now people are starting to ask questions like, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it really mean to be a Christian? Which is a question that I think we should all stop and ponder every now and then, like at least once a decade, maybe more, we should stop and say, what does it mean to be a Christian? Maybe that's the question you're asking right now. Maybe you're wrestling this. Like, what does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? I think that's a really good question to wrestle with. So they're asking this, like, what matters here? What's this really all about? What are we supposed to do? What does a life of faith really look like? And Paul, he hears about this. He's journeying around and he's like, okay, I wanna clear a few things up. And so I'm gonna write you this letter and hopefully this makes it clear to you what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And he writes this letter and that's what we call Romans. Now, being this classically educated scholar that he is, he doesn't just send them an instruction manual, which I find interesting and I actually think it's important. Uh, has anybody ever been to Ikea before? The human hamster wheel called Ikea? You've been there? Raise your hand if you've ever bought something from Ikea and had to put it together. Okay, we're gonna just talk about our shared pain for just a moment here. Um, 
You know, you get, this, you get this furniture and like you see it in the showroom and it looks like a piece of furniture and then you go to pick it up and it's a flat box, right? And you're just like, what am I gonna do with this? And then you open it up and there's like 1,037 steps of instructions that you have to follow. Very simple. They give you basic, simple instructions. And here's what I'm gonna say from experience, years of experience, follow the instructions, <laughs> I, every time I get one of those things, I'm like, ah, I don't need them. And I'm like, step three, I'm like, where's the instructions? Somebody give them to me because I need these things, right? And, and if you follow them, and if, if you actually do, if you follow them after step 1037, you suddenly will see before you this piece of furniture. Like it might've taken you four days to do it, but it's in your living room and you saw it over there and now it's there and it's amazing, it's amazing to see. But imagine this, imagine, imagine that when you opened up the box, that the first 10 pages of the instruction manual, instead of it being simple, basic pictures, there was like this document that described in great detail where the wood for your furniture was sourced. Sounds like a very Portland thing to do, right? <laughs> and the saw, the, the metal for the blade was crafted in this person's shop. And then the, the hometown, the background of the designer who first imagined the Scandinavian masterpiece. He's here, you know, just this resume of all of his works, all of this stuff. Imagine you open up and you see that. I imagine you would do with it what I would do. And that would be use it for fire starter. That's what I would do, right? I would just skip through it. Like, no, we don't need this. Give me the instructions. And our bias, our bent as human beings is to do the same thing with Christianity. We just say, well, just tell me what to do, right? Just tell me what I'm supposed to do or tell me what I'm not supposed to do. Give me the rules, give me the regulations, give me the instructions and I'll just follow them. But the apostle Paul, he sends this letter to the church in Rome and instead of just basic instructions, it's full of history, it's full of philosophy, it's full of theology. And it's because he knows, he knows us and he knows people. The apostle Paul had been the most zealous, religious, moralistic person on the planet. If, if you think about religion and rules and rituals personified, it would have been the apostle Paul. And he was angry and he was empty. He was a miserable person. And then he gets rescued out of that by this thing called grace, the grace of Jesus. And so because of that, I believe it's because of this, that it takes him 11 chapters in this letter before he really ever gets to giving you and I anything practical or tangible to do. Like he makes sure, like what does it really look like to be a Christian? He makes sure it's front loaded with all of this other information because the last thing that he wants, and quite frankly, the last thing that I want is for us to allow Christianity to be another works-based religion that overemphasizes behavior modification rather than the genuine connection with a God who loves us and an increased capacity for the love of others that Jesus invites us into. Paul has gone to great lengths to make sure that what he's about to say, because he's going to give us some instructions, he wants to make sure that what he's about, us, about to ask us to do, that it is rooted in this profound understanding of God's love and God's grace. He has made sure that you and I know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, right? He's made sure that we understand that God is for us and not against us. He has ensured that we are loved and we are covered and we are cared for by our heavenly father. And now with all of that established in our hearts, 
we come to what I believe are two of the most critical verses in the letter where he gives us two things that you and I, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, these are the things that you and I actually do as people who follow Jesus. So Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, I wanna read the text and then we're gonna, we're gonna unpack this together. Starts in verse one. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let me start with this first word that he says. He says, therefore. Therefore, that means that everything he's about to say is connected to everything that he just got done saying all of these chapters before, right? Everything up to this point. Like he's saying this, because of all of these things, or I've talked about God's faithfulness to Israel and what Jesus has done for us and the theology and the philosophy and the history, because of all of this stuff, now I want you to listen to this. But he doesn't just ask us, and he actually doesn't command it to us. Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge you to do this. Now, this is really a beautiful expression that points to something that I think is beautiful about Christianity. The, the word that Paul uses that we translate urge is the Greek word, the root word, parakaleo which is the exact same word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit who comes alongside of you. Parakaleo means to come alongside of you. So Paul, he's not shouting directions from a distance. He's not sitting on a throne commanding things at people. He's actually calling us to join him. This word urge that he uses is parakaleo. He's saying, come join me, come alongside of me in this. And so what he's asking of is he's saying this, he's going, listen, I'm not telling you to do anything I'm not already doing. I'm already here. This is how I'm living. And it's amazing. And I can tell you from experience what it's like. And so I'm urging you, would you come join me in this way of life? Make your way of life the way that I'm living my life. And so he's not admonishing them. He's not upset with them. He's just, he's beckoning them. Come join me, brothers and sisters. There's this warmth, right? Brothers and sisters, would you just join me in this thing? That's what he's saying to them. Which I said earlier is something unique and beautiful about Christianity. Christianity is a communal, relational endeavor. It is a team sport. It is not an individual sport. So, so Paul doesn't email them the rules and say, you can just work on this from home, right? He invites them in to join him in the way of Jesus. Are you with me so far? Okay, seven or eight of you are good. All right, that's good. That's enough for me to keep going. Then to be clear that this is not rooted in religiosity, which is all about trying, like religion is always about us obeying to try to earn God's favor. And the gospel is always about us responding to the love that we've already received. In, in order to make that clear, the next thing he says is in view of God's mercy. So brothers and sisters, I urge you to join me in light of everything you know about God, the fact that he loves you and he's for you and he's done all these things. In light of all of that, then he says, I want you to know what's next. And he lays it on us. And the entire appeal is such a contrast to Western thought and even most expressions of Western Christianity that it almost seems offensive when you read this. 
But let me just say this. If we let our offense or if we let our cultural sensitivities keep us from hearing these things, then there are going to be massive ramifications on how we understand faith and life in Jesus. Like if you don't get this, like if, if, if you miss what he's saying here, it's like missing the first 30 minutes of a movie and then trying to figure out the plot. That's what this is like. You're gonna struggle to make sense of things because this is the key that opens the doorway to the way of Jesus. He tells them this, offer your body as a living sacrifice. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Now, I want to admit that that should sound very weird to us in this culture, right? Like, is this a cult? What are we talking about? What are we doing here, right? Any reference to sacrifices in our culture that seems barbaric, it seems primitive, but you have to understand that in the first century, sacrifices and temples, there are common places, pumpkin spice lattes and Starbucks in our culture, right? They are everywhere. They're all over the place in every culture, all kinds of religions. And I'm certain that if Paul was writing today, he probably would have referenced some Starbucks drink to make a point. I would have done that. He would have done that. But that doesn't diminish the power of what he's actually saying. And I want you to just track with me here. The way these sacrificial systems worked in these ancient societies was that you had temples in these cities and you had altars. You had places in the temple where sacrifices would be made. And there would be a priest there who would receive your sacrifice. And you as a person who was trying to appease the angry gods, you would get some form of animal. You would get a bird or you would get a cow or you would get something and you would bring it alive. Maybe you had raised it. Maybe you'd bought it. We don't really know where they all came from, but you would bring this animal with you alive to the temple. And then you would go into the temple and you would present yourself before the priest and the priest would have a few things to say to you and you'd have a few things to say to him and then you would kill that animal in front of that priest and you would lay the body on the altar and there would be this fire that would consume it. And then you would go home and you would hope that that did the trick and that that angry God wasn't gonna be upset with you because of that. So Paul is writing these Romans who are so familiar with this process and he says, I want you to do that with you. You do that with your life. You take your life and you march it to the temple and you get in front of the priest and you put yourself on the altar. You sacrifice yourself. That's what he says. And it's not something we do once. A living sacrifice means that every day or maybe every hour, maybe right now and every minute, you literally have to deliberately and consciously and perpetually give yourself to God. It is like a daily ritual. And it's intense. And, and, and here, here's why it's intense. I don't believe it's possible to live in and genuinely experience the way of Jesus unless you put to death the idea that you have a right to live life as you choose. And I'm wondering if I could say anything that would be more unpopular in our culture today. And I'm okay if you get upset with me about this because I love you too much not to tell you the truth because this is the key to understanding Jesus. And, and I'm gonna say this because I live where you live and I'm wired like you. I got the same DNA. We got the same blood running through our veins. All these things are the same. 
There isn't another society that's more averse to the very essence of what it means to live a Christian life than the one that we're living in today. Everything in society today is pulling and tugging us away from the most fundamental aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To be a Jesus person, you, it requires this. What it means to truly be a Christian and follow in the way of Jesus is that you put to death the right to live a life as you choose. You put to death the idea that you belong to yourself. You put to death the idea that you know what's best for you, your life. You put all that to death and then you give yourself to God. And let me tell you this, it feels like a death. That's why we call it a death. It feels like a death. It really does. It's probably why there's a little tension in the room right now, right? It's probably why quietly you're arguing with me. You're like, I don't know if I like this, right? Because it's so ingrained in us. But it's so ingrained in us that it has to die. But on the other side, there's life. See, that's the thing with this. In the old religious sacrificial system, you took this thing that was alive and you took it to the temple and you put it on the altar and then it wound up being dead. But what Paul is presenting in Romans is just the opposite. We take ourselves, which are actually dead, and we take it to the temple and we lay it down before God and we leave alive. Are you with me on this? We go from death to life. So what, what Paul is urging us towards, and I really want you to understand this, what Paul is urging us toward is something that is profound and something that is deep, something that I believe is transcendent. He's inviting us to this deep acknowledgement, to think about our lives in a, in a different sort of way, to think about the source of life and the purpose of life in a new way. And it's you and I, we're, we're, we're moving from the superficial and we're recognizing and even saying something like this. My life is from you. My life is in you. My life is for you. That's what it means. It's interesting because Paul goes on to say something that just gets a little lost in translation from Greek to English. And we translate it that he says, this is your true and proper worship, which isn't untrue. It's not technically wrong. It's just simply not as robust as what Paul is trying to communicate in the Greek language. That's a bit too linear for us. Through the language that he chooses, we come to realize that what he's getting at is that when you and I come to this place, when we, when, when we deeply recognize that life is from and in and for God, that at that very moment, when we, when we become aware of that, when we can utter those words, that we are in that moment our most true version of ourselves. Like that is when, like right there, is when you are being who you were meant to be. When you can say that life is from you and in you and for you, that in that moment when you can say that earnestly from your soul, you are in that point the most true version of yourself. And then moving from that understanding outward into your life, you carry that into your work or you carry that into your relationships, you carry that into your recreation, when you live from that place, now you're living how you were created to be. Are you still with me? Okay, I lost a couple along the way, but that's okay. As long as a few of you make it to the end, right? So that's verse one. 
That's verse one. And then in verse two, he gives us the second thing and it's directly connected and interwoven to the first one. They depend on each other. Imagine like a helix. You can't do number one without number two and you can't do number two without number one. And it's this, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Which uh, I, I, don't, I don't mean to be Captain Obvious here, but I think somebody might need to be just for a moment. There is a pattern of this world. There is a form that we are being pressed into. In fact, Paul, a good way to say what Paul is saying, he says there's the way of the age. There is a way of the age and it has the capacity to shape you and form you and mold you. Um, th this week, my friend and colleague here at B4, Steve Mitchell, he was writing some things about this idea to me and he described it, the way of the age like this. He said, it is the alchemy of culture and politics and dark powers that seek to shape all people. The spirit of the age battles the spirit of Christ within the bosom of every believer. We all feel the tug of war. And, and what is the way of the age trying to do? I think this is a really good question. So I, I hope some of you are asking this, right? What is, the, what is this way of the age? What's it trying to do? What's it trying to accomplish? And this is where too many moralistic Christians take a very wrong turn and they attempt to make this about breaking the pattern, this whole idea of breaking this pattern being about us being on our best behavior. Don't conform means, well, you better be good boys and girls, right? Like the objective of the pattern of the world, the, the way of the age, is, is to get you to engage in some sort of questionable behavior. In my opinion, that is a massive swing and a miss if that's what you think Paul's talking about. What is the way of the age doing? It's not trying to get you to sin. Oh, messed up. There it is. We got you. That's not the way of the age. It's doing something much deeper the way of the age is doing something that is much bigger and much more impactful. The way of the age is unwinding what we just spoke of in verse one. The idea that my life is from God, that my life is in God, that my life is for God. The way of the age is undoing all of those things. The way of the age tells you that your life is from you that you get to make your life, that you get to determine what it is, that whatever you have is because you did those things. You get credit for the way things go. That's what the way of the age says. The way of the age tells you that your life is in you, that if you want life, you're gonna find it inside of you, that it's in here, that it's about me, that I'm the center of the universe, that you can only depend on me. That's what it tries to tell you. The way of the, the, way of the age tells you that life is for you. It's for your pleasure. It's for you to do what you want. That's what the pattern of the age is actually all about. And it's doing a number on us. We might be the most me-focused people to ever walk the planet. And my question I ask myself all the time is this, where is that getting us? Like, where is it getting us? Like nearly every psychological study on this topic reveals the harmful effects of selfishness. And yet the very folks who deliver the bad news about selfishness and narcissism and all this self-centeredness, they tell us that the resolution is still someplace inside of here, right? It's like this ironic cycle that we're in. Maybe you've noticed what I've noticed, that the happiest people in my life, like the most joyful people, 
The people I wanna be around, the people that like bring a smile to my face, they are consistently the least self-centered people. Have you noticed this? The most selfless people are the happiest people. Paul says, stop letting the way of the age shape you. And the way you do that is through the renewing of your mind, he says. Turns out, our brains matter. No pun intended. Our brains matter, right? What you spend your time thinking about, what you dwell on, what you listen to continually, it affects who you are. What you watch, it affects who you are. The debates that you're having with yourself and your mind or the debates you're having with other people, anything you're engaging with your mind, it actually shapes your neurology. It shapes who you are. It shapes how you live. All the things that engage your mind matter. And somehow, all the way back in the first century, the Apostle Paul was talking about neuroplasticity. Susanna Cahalan, strange name to say, she's a best, uh, New York Times bestselling author. She recently wrote this. She said, our minds have the incredible capacity to both alter the strength of connections among neurons, essentially rewiring them and create entirely new pathways. Turns out Paul would have been a bestseller today, right? Because he was saying the same thing back then. Our minds renew our lives. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He understood that we can change who we are by intentionally changing how we think. Which is why I, I continually go back to Paul's writing to the Philippian church. In Philippians chapter four, verse eight, he says this, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Isn't that interesting? He says, I want your mind to be renewed. And then he's telling, he's telling people, he's saying, listen, if you're gonna renew your mind, think about those things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Let your mind dwell on those things. And I think about all the stuff we, we feel today. I think about the, the anger that exists in so many of us, or the bitterness, the the anxiety that we deal with, the worry that we, that we walk around with, the disdain that we have for other people, other groups of people because they think differently than us, the hatred that exists in some of our hearts, all of that stuff, I think about how all of that gets driven out is when we stop. And think about how we would change if we were transformed by shifting our thinking to what is true and what is noble. I mean, have you ever thought about something and thought, is that noble? <laughs> There's a few times a day when I think about things that are far from noble, right? Or right, or pure, or admirable. Can you imagine if our minds moved differently around these things? And that first one, what is true? There's a lot of things that are true, but do you know what's true? My life is from God. My life is in God and my life is for God. That is what's true. Amen? We're gonna close by taking communion today, and um, I'm gonna invite the band back out. We're gonna do this a little differently than we normally do. Um, 
because they wrote a new song and it's just a great song for us to sit and think about some of these things. Let our brains think differently for a moment. And it kind of follows in line with the Apostle Paul's admonition. I don't talk about this very often, but there's this spot in Corinthians where the Apostle Paul says that when we're gonna, when we're gonna take communion together, that we should examine our hearts, we should examine our lives. And oftentimes during this space, I take a moment to see like, Am I aligned? Is my heart and my life aligned with the gospel? Like if, it, if to be a Christian, it means that I'm supposed to be a living sacrifice, am I really living like a living sacrifice? And, and if I'm supposed to be renewed by the, or transformed by the renewing of my mind, is my mind really transforming myself? Am I really being renewed in this way? And so I take these moments to just sort of reflect and think and pray. And so I'm gonna encourage you now, if you wanna take your communion cups out, but um, get those out, but let's just take a moment to, to really listen and reflect and pray and then I'm gonna come back up after the song and then we're gonna take communion communally together and I'll lead us in that. So let's take some time now and let's reflect. Be still, my soul. 
how subversive this thing that we do every month really is. You know, Jesus gathers these people around him and he says, you know, I want you to follow me. I want you to be my disciples. I want you to do what I do. He's really clear in just saying, like, to be my disciple means you do what I do. But then Jesus sits with his disciples in the same way that he would sit with us. And he sits in this room before his crucifixion and he takes the bread and he says, this is my body 
broken for you. And then he takes the cup of wine and he says, this is my blood poured out for you. And and this ritual that he invited us into, this way of remembering him, all of it completely flips the script on what our society says. He says, I'm gonna lay my life down for you. And then I want you to do the same. And in light of what he's done for us, it seems pretty easy to do, to be living sacrifices. And so this morning, as we remember Jesus, I just wanna remind us to take this time and ask, am I a living sacrifice? Because if I'm a follower of the way, it means I'm a follower of this way. I'm a follower of the one who laid his life down for me so that I can do that for him. Amen. So Jesus on that night took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And together they ate as we eat now together. After he had eaten, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of Let's remember Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. Would you stand with me? Such a good time together today. you be men and women who know that life is from God and that life is in God and that life is for God in the name of the one who made all of that possible Jesus I pray amen